Ever since uh, the pastor said he was going to do uh, Psalm 16 today, and I was reading, and verse 8 just jumped out at me because it reminded me of a choral song we did a while back. We will not be shaken, and you won't if you trust in the Lord Jesus. Amen? And uh, so we're going to sing an old choral song today. I hope you remember it. Um, Many writers have said that if you add up, God is our refuge, God is our safety, He is our shelter. We need not fear that there are at least 365 times he says that. Isn't that interesting? That he, he gave us a verse for every day of our life that we can trust him. And uh, this song, I, I, for me, it's just one of those songs that after we do it, I'm, I'm just standing a little straighter, a little stronger, a little taller spiritually and in my trust of God after we sing it. So listen to it and then join with us, okay? 
for we trust in our God, and through his unfailing love, we will not be shaken, we will not be shaken, we will not be shaken. Sing that with me. For we trust in our God, and through his unfailing love, we will not be shaken, we will not be shaken, we will not be shaken.
Thank you. Thank you for a promise that reminds us. And yes, we repeated that phrase quite a bit, but so do the Psalms oftentimes repeat phrases that are important and uh, that you are with us, that you will never fail us. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this truth that we need not fear. We will not be shaken if our trust is completely in you. Lord, help us to trust you in this time of offering, uh, this time of, of worship. It's a time of offering. And, and, and Lord, it is hard to trust. Uh, with uh, finances. But Lord, those of us who have done it over the years and uh, have, have established a lifestyle of, of this way understands uh, that you and you alone provide. And uh, Lord, you will never fail us as long as we're faithful to you in this area. And so Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to give. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Rest in you alone. I say to the Lord, Are my God, I have no good apart from you. All sons and daughters, brothers, sisters, my sing together other God shall satisfy God you satisfy in your presence there is fullness of joy of joy me in the night. You are before me, because you're for me, I'm alright. It'll be alright. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Put on flesh, lived a blameless life 
chains fell to the floor. Now the serpent's crushed, it has been finished, and you reign forevermore. Are my portion, my cup, and you make my lot secure. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, a beautiful inheritance. In your presence there is fullness of joy, of joy. Well, I think the best songs come from the Word of God. And there's an example of singing the Psalms. What a blessing that song was to my heart and mind. And I hope that all the music today uh, has helped you set your affections on the Lord. As I read this psalm, uh, I thought about it this week, my heart and mind, mind, uh, was drawn to the hymn, Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing. And when you read that psalm, and I'll read it in a few moments, you'll think about that. Come thy fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. O oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. We know this line. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You think of that as you read this. But the last verse is also in this psalm. Oh, that day when freed from sinning. Oh, let that speak to your heart. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in the blood shed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. What a song. Come thy fount of every blessing. Okay, let's listen to Psalm 16. Remember the superscription is in the Hebrews. So it is inspired text. A mictum, mictum 
Most people think this, again, has to do with a musical accompaniment because uh, these are songs, right? So the mitkam of David. That's verse 1 in the Hebrew. And then what verse you have is 16.1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. There's a contrast in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Transition in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Many of you took the challenge and read a book called Knowing God. And... Uh, I've robbed that from J.I. Packer, and that's the title of the sermon, because there's no better title once you read Psalm 16 and understand what it's saying than knowing God. J.I. Packer actually concludes his classic work with this statement. Where has all this led us? So we think about a treatise on knowing God, and he gets to the end of the book, and he says, where has this led us to? What's the position we have to hold? And he says it's to the very heart of biblical religion. We have been brought to the point where David's prayer and profession in Psalm 16 may become our own. J.I. Packer will go on to quote Psalm 16 and then he continues. Again, we have been brought to the point where we can grasp the truth in descriptions of the Christian life in the terms of victory and Jesus satisfies. Put those two things together. Victory and Jesus satisfies. He says these phrases are precious and point to the link between knowledge of God on the one hand and human fulfillment on the other. When we speak of the adequacy of God, it is this link that we highlight. And the link is of the essence of Christianity. Those who know God in Christ have found the secret of true freedom and true manhood. Packer ends his book by listing priorities that seem to dic dictate the Christian landscape and the days of our culture. And he says, but it is tragic that in paying attention to them, so many in our days seem to have been distracted from what was and is and always will be the true priority of every human being, and that is learning to know God in Christ. Psalm 16 is about knowing God which will result in satisfaction and joy. 
Psalm 16 is about the supremacy of God over all of life. Did you notice it here? Not just life here, but life hereafter. It's about all of life. Jonathan Edwards was a major figure in the first great awakening. And he was also the first president of Princeton University. Oh, how things have changed. Right? This is what he said. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. When those that see it, delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. I think these words capture the heart of David in this psalm. David not only saw the Lord's glory, but he was satisfied in that glory. He delighted in the Lord. And this is what may be called a psalm of confidence. David focuses briefly on the protective watch care of the Lord and the benefits of knowing him. And he makes a confession that he's satisfied in the Lord. David says to the Lord, you are my refuge in verse 1. Think of this. Verse 2, you are my goodness. In verse 5 and 6, you are my inheritance and my cup. In verse 11, you are my fullness of joy. And in verse 11, you are pleasures forevermore. All I have is Christ. That's why I asked David to sing that. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. So it reminds us of Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Paul says this, whatever I gain, I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. And he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Paul had this one desire that dominated his life, that he may know him. And if you read on down in Philippians 3, it's that he may know him in the power of his resurrection, which this text speaks of. So... Psalm 16 is about the surpassing worth of knowing the Lord and the satisfaction and joy that that brings to our lives. And if you'll remember, Psalm 1 provided us a stark contrast. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season and his leaves shall not wither and whatever he does it shall prosper. But the ungodly are not so. So there was this contrast. Again, in Psalm 16, there's another contrast in verse 4. And it sets up the same scenario of a contrast between those who know the Lord in the Godward way and it brings joy versus those who are idolatrous and it brings sorrow. The superscription, again, includes this new term, miktum. And again, probably a reminder of a musical note. It's supposed to be sung. Uh, Selah is not given, but perhaps it's a reminder of how we are to sing even a song like this one, right? So there's this brief petition of safety. I don't think David is like facing Absalom in this particular psalm. Like his son is after him. I think it's more of a generality of God's watch care over David's life forever. And how the Lord has watched after him. The bulk of the psalm is about his intimate knowledge of God. And about his confidence resting in the Lord. Theologically, it's also important to remember that David becomes a type of mediator. Okay? 
we've learned this somewhat. He's a mediator of God's eternal plan. So you have to read in Scripture, especially in Psalm 16, it's going to form what's called a meta-narrative. Okay? There's a big idea in the Word of God. And so this is called a messianic psalm. Okay? I know I'm giving you kind of, some of you think I'm in a seminary class. In order for you to understand, you've got to think with me. Okay? I know Americans today, we don't really like to be pushed in that area. But you've got to think. Okay? And so a meta-narrative is there's a big idea, okay? And the big idea in this psalm is that it points to Jesus, okay? As a matter of fact, all of the Scripture points to Christ. So that meta-narrative picks up in Genesis 3.15. It runs concurrently all the way through the Scripture. Moses said, there will be a prophet who comes that is greater than thyself. How did Moses know that? Well, the Holy Spirit and, of course, the meta-narrative. David knew that a king greater than him would sit upon his throne, and that kingdom would have no end. So there's this solidarity. And, and David knew this. And he stood in, he, he stood in corporate solidarity with the nation of Israel. And this relationship that the Lord established with David and his house means that the faithfulness of David's son then will affect not only Israel, but the whole world. And aren't you thankful for that? The Davidic covenant will affect the entire world. Why? Because of the promise... And then the faithfulness of the true king. So when you read the Psalms, especially book 1, right? That's, that's Psalm 3 through 41. You've got to keep in mind that you read it with the Davidic covenant in mind. Remember, folks, it, when you memorize the books of the Bible, this is called what? When you get to the middle of your Bible. You've got Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Never forget that Psalms is a book of the Bible. Now, I know you read them sporadically and inconsistent. Maybe you're consistently reading the Psalms, but you may read Psalm 1 tomorrow, Psalm 25 the next day, Psalm 55 the next day. That's okay, all right? But understand, it's a book, and every single Psalm is interconnected, all 150 of them. Maybe you've never heard that before, but it's, it's the reality, okay? So, there is no apparent order when you think about it, but it's there, okay? The apparent order is in the Word of God. So, the order is purposeful. Psalm 16 is part of book 1, but it's also a narrower part of 15 through 24. And every one of those are messianic psalms. For instance, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who said that? David first. But also Christ, so they're interconnected. I just wanted to drop that line to you for you to think about. Psalm 16 is about what went on in David's life. But it's also about Jesus Christ and his church. So we look for that. All right, you ready for the outline? Amen? All right, here we go. Let's preach this psalm. When we know God, we value God supremely. That's the first thing in verses 1 through 4. He gives this plea for protection, and I think it's continued protection. I don't think it's one particular trouble. I think it's preserve me. As a matter of fact, the word is watch over me. And the glory of this, uh, in knowing the Lord and having that refuge and safety, we can ask Him for protection, can't we? We can pray for protection. We can ask Him to deliver us. 
Back in Psalm 2 verse 12, the kings and the rulers of the earth are encouraged to take refuge in Yahweh. Why? Because he's the only refuge that saves. David looks only, only to Yahweh for his protection. He looks only to the Lord for his protection. Kings and rulers are told that there's no way of salvation. Stop raging against the Lord and his anointed. Put your faith and confidence in the Lord Yahweh, the Lord God. But David says, only in you do I seek refuge. The wicked in Psalm 12, 4 say, who is Lord over us? David says, gladly, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. Can you put that personal pronoun in front of the word Lord? Can you this morning? You are my Lord. He uses Adoniah here as, and says, apart from me, I have no good, apart from you, I have no good thing. The sovereign Lord. Master of creation is his good, and apart from him, the Lord, he has no good. God is his delight. God is his treasure. It's who, he is his refuge. For us to look for goodness anywhere else is foolish. That's what David is reminding us of. It would mean to pursue another god, a false god. Hamilton says that the phrase can also be taken this way. My good things are not over you. This means that in David's life, he did not exalt anything over God. Do we ever do that? Am I guilty? Are you guilty? David says, I don't exalt anything over God. He is asserting the supreme value of our God. Listen to this towering profession of faith. Yahweh, you are my highest good, and there is none above you. Lord, you are my ultimate good, and nothing is above you. So if we do not have God himself, even the best things of life will be value, valueless to us. Jesus said this, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, and yet he forfeits his soul? Matthew 16, 26. This means that having come to know God as a refuge, our Redeemer, our Lord... Nothing hereafter can ever mean as much to us as our God does. When we know Him, we value Him supremely. And the result of our relationship with the Lord will have an effect on our relationship with others. Did y'all know that in the Baptist church? I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Which reminds me of something. David is clearly thinking about, in my opinion, the first and the greatest commandment. What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So really what we're seeing here is the Lord David emphasizing the first two commandments. Because check out verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So... The result of our relationship with Christ is that we ought to have a relationship with the saints. Y'all see it? David delights in godly people. He honors those who fear the Lord. We delight in one another because of a shared commitment to love God supremely. When we share this commitment, it brings the people of God together. This means that love for God should result in love for the people of God. 
I don't know if you thought about this or not, but we are God's gift to one another. To delight in God's people is to take delight in the very goodness of God. This is God's plan for his people. Do you delight in the saints? Or you just get up on Sunday morning and say, I have to go be around those people again. I mean, I would rather do something else. Do you enjoy and love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you figured out that the people of God need to be around people who have been with the Lord? You do. We need to be around people who have been around the Lord. I can't encourage that enough. If you know Christ, like verses 1 and 2 speaks to you, then there is, you're in trouble if verse 3 is not a reality. In reality, verse 1 and 2 is not true for you if verse 3 is not. Loving God results in loving the saints. Verse 4 stands in stark contrast to those. This is not, these are not people who love God supremely. Uh, the Bible says they do not trust in the Lord, nor do they enjoy the community of believers. They actually run after false gods. One pastor theologian said they chase after idols, false gods of the head and the heart, false gods of gold and silver, false gods of power and prestige, and position and, position and possessions. In doing so, this text says they multiply their sorrows. To chase after idols, folks, is to chase after empty dreams. As Jeremiah would tell us, they're clouds without water. They're hopes that will never be realized. What you think will bring joy will actually bring sorrow. David says, I will have nothing to do with the works of those who do not love the Lord. Now, at this point, we're like, well, I thought we're supposed to be... I thought we're supposed to have contact without contamination, right? We're not supposed to be isolated as believers. Well, I think David would remind us more of the way of life. In other words, he's not telling us that we shouldn't evangelize lost people, right? He's talking about our priorities, our thoughts, uh, our everyday life, what we think is most important. David says, I will have nothing to do with the works of those who do not love the Lord. And he, then he says he will not join himself with pagan worship. And that's what the terminology means, drink offerings of blood. He's talking about false gods and all kinds of things that maybe they did to think they were worshiping these false gods. Nor will he allow the names of false gods to flow from his lips. This is pretty strong, isn't it? David is drawn to the righteous. He's turned away from the wicked. Hear that again. He's drawn to the righteous. He's turned away from the wicked. When we value our God supremely, then we will find it very uncomfortable to be with those who sin openly. We'll find it uncomfortable to be with those who blaspheme our master or to those who are hostile to Jesus Christ. Our ultimate Commitment to our God will determine what we value. Are y'all listening? It will determine what we promote. By the way, what's even worse than taking part in idolatry and running after false gods is to stand up and clap when other people do it. And that's exactly what's happening in the United States of America. We, uh, people, even Christians at times, are guilty of just sitting by idly, the sin of silence, right, 
and just letting our culture do whatever. Look, we can't let their wrong be right for them. We have a responsibility as David is giving us this material for us to understand that when we value him most, we promote, we prioritize, and we also know what way of life we will discourage people from going into. So, this is really a commitment to the first commandment. Do you love God supremely? You shall have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. That's what David is unfolding for us in verses 1 and 2. And then he's reminding us of, of love for the saints. And then he's reminding us of the way you don't want to go. This is really, again, a commitment to the first commandment. We will place no one and nothing before the Lord, worshiping him alone. And then we're to love our God and our neighbor. All right, number two. When we know God, we find satisfaction and joy in Him. I hope you understand that there's nothing better than knowing the Lord. I hope you've come to that understanding. Hamilton says, if someone responds to Psalm 15, you ever read Psalm 15? O Lord, who shall sojourn to your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does not does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Have you ever done any of these things? You're guilty, right? In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own herd and does not change. In other words, this is talking about integrity things and characteristics. And somebody may read this and say, nice guys always finish last, right? What does it pay to walk in that kind of integrity and that kind of character? We know full well that there's no change inwardly in you for those things in Psalm 15 unless you know Christ. He is the one, again, Psalm 15 is a messianic psalm. He's the very one who accomplished all that. But what do you say to someone? What does the Bible say to someone who says, well, I see what Psalm 15 asserts, but nice guys always finish last. The biblical response will be this. Bad guys go to hell. I'm not being funny. Uh, it is funny for me to say it like that. But folks, that is the biblical response. And you need to understand that. Psalm 16 asserts that good guys know God. And check this out, young people. We enjoy Him. Right? It's not that, that you know, stack the deck up and, and those who lie and cheat and steal and do all these things are going to be the ones in the last and the end who finish well. God's got the last word. Don't forget that. It may, it may, you may assume that all is great and on the up and up when people turn their back on God or they chase after false gods. But the biblical text, the word of God, tells us that good guys know God and we enjoy him. We enjoy him. So David draws some language. Did, did this language sound familiar when he talked about inheritance? And allotted portions. Did anybody think about Joshua when you read this? Raise your hand. Come on, folks. Surely you did. And that's what he's referring to. When Joshua's making his conquest to the promised land, there's allotment of territory that's given to the tribes of Israel. Now do you remember? This means yes. This means no, right? David draws from language related to Joshua's conquest and the dividing of the land. Now keep in mind, this is metaphorical language. He uses the covenant name of God at this point. He moves from Adonai 
to Yahweh, which is the name of our God. And in doing so, he's talking about the covenant relationship. I, you will be my God, and I will be, I will be your God, and you will be my people. He's talking about that covenant relationship. And then the Lord is described as our portion and our cup. In other words, the Lord is David's portion. Not the piece of land. The Lord is his portion. The Lord is his cup. The Lord is his inheritance. So Psalm 11.6 tells us that the wicked have fire and brimstone and scorching wind as the portion of their cup. David asserts that the Lord is the portion of his cup. Psalm 23, 5 speaks of a cup that runs over, right? So, what David needs for life is the Lord, not things from the Lord. What David needs, the only thing that satisfies him is the Lord. God is his drink and his food. The Lord is his nourishment. All we will ever need, we find in the Lord. Let that resonate in your mind. All you, were, you will ever need is found in the Lord. He is more than you can take in. The Lord is also his inheritance. This inheritance is maintained, upheld by the Lord and the one whose boundary lines have fallen in pleasant or delightful places. Isn't that awesome poetic language? Boundary lines, fallen in pleasant or, or delightful places. What David has, he has from the Lord. God gave it to him. He didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. Our inheritance is safe and secure because why? It's protected by the Lord. God himself, God gives himself to us, his saints. Now, was land significant to the Israelites? Yes, it was. Uh, Hamilton notes this, and it's very important. He says, the tribal allotment of ground constituted the man's standing in society. The cultivation of that land would produce his prosperity and become the foundation of his reputation. The produce of the land constituted his livelihood, providing his food, giving a place for his family, and an inheritance for his children. David says... That Yahweh is all of this. Are y'all listening? God is all of this to him and more. Our God made the world. To gain him is to gain the one who made all things, controls all things, everything. He's the inventor of every pleasure. Y'all listening? He's the inventor of every pleasure. He's a definer of all right and wrong. He's the rewarder of those who seek him. Why would you want to go anywhere else to find satisfaction? Why would we go anywhere else to lose him, even if you gained the whole world in exchange, would be to lose everything because you will face his wrath and his displeasure. Anyone seeking pleasure, joy, satisfaction, and happiness, here's the deal. You should seek the Lord. That's what David reminds us. He is our sustenance in verse 5. He is our inheritance in verse 6. And now in verse 7 we have his presence. Listen to the Bible. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Do you think David knew the importance of the word of God? Did he? Do I have to go back and quote Psalm 1 again? In his law does he 
meditate day and night. So God, David's God-centered focus is beautifully balanced with personal response, adoration, praise. He sounds like a humble worshiper. He doesn't have his chest out and his chin up. He's very humble before the Lord. And he knows the importance of the Word of God. It is the Lord who gives him counsel. Isaiah 9, 6 says he is a wonderful He's the Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor. So, Proverbs, 6, Proverbs 2, 6 through 7 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come, come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. So, David speaks of his guts. That's the Hebrew word. Correcting him in the night. You ever had that happen before? The Lord working through his word in the night to correct you. Psalm 17.3 says to the Lord, you visit in the night. And the emphasis is upon meditating on the word and the fact that the Lord gives us instruction when we're thinking about the word of God. So the emphasis is on the instruction. Now, did the insecurities of life ever disappear? This is not... Life in the sky, pie and, uh, what do you call it? Life, uh, yeah, you got it. Yeah. That's not what this is. This, is. this is not taking ease at Zion and kicking back. This is not name it and claim it, right? It's not that at all. It's not prosperity gospel. David is telling you real life experiences. Difficulties, And in the midst of that, it is the Word of God that is correcting his life. It's the Lord, Lord's biblical counsel that corrects any wayward inclinations that we feel. Think of this verse. Bring every thought under captivity to the obedience of Christ. When's the last time you tried that? When we are called by God to do just that in Corinthians. To bring every thought under captivity to the obedience of Christ. And this is what's going on. It's the Lord's biblical counsel that corrects us. We continue to live in the day of the counselor, don't we? We live in the day of the psychiatrist, the day of the psychologist, the day of the psychoanalyst, the day of the therapist. Do you need some of that help sometimes? I would not deny that at all. But most psychiatrists need one. All right? But do you need counsel? Absolutely. But I want to remind you that the counsel of the Lord is the best. Okay? The counsel of the Lord is the best. David received wisdom and direction from the Lord. Speaking of the Word of God, 1 Peter 2.1 reminds us that it's essential for you to grow. You've got to desire the pure milk of the Word of God that you might grow. Your chance of growth... Without the word of God is the chance of a baby taking milk from his mom or not taking that milk from his mom and it growing. You're not going to grow, folks, without the word of God. It is necessary. It is essential. So, it is often at night when the heart is easily troubled. You ever been there? When the heart is worried, it is the Lord alone that brings that counsel that you need and the rest that you need. David is also mindful of the presence of God. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand. I shall not be 
shaken. What a verse. Is there a connection between how we live and a cultivation of the awareness of God? Is there? Hamilton says David reminds himself of God, makes himself conscious of God, and he lives his life out before the Lord. If he's always at your right hand, that means you're thinking about him. Amen, right? It means you're thinking about him. Is there a connection between God consciousness and the confidence that David forges in his life to say, you are at my right hand and I will not be shaken? Guess what? If you're not conscious of his presence, then you will be shaken. And there's this connection here. Because the Lord's divine presence is there, there's unshakable confidence in the Lord. We have the Lord's presence. Why would we ever want to move away from that and be shaken at all? Psalm 15.5 says, He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things. So what things? Walking in integrity. Why? Because we're always in the presence of God. He's forever at our right hand. We live in a certain way because we are conscious of our God, of His person and His presence. We fear Him and nothing else. And His, His, His presence is actually a reward to us. Have you ever thought about the presence of God being a reward to you? Why? Because you live in freedom from guilt. You live in freedom from remorse. Fear of being found out. Fear of condemnation. To know God this way moves David to say this in verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. There is an inner, inner, inside contentment that David has. But it's also outward, it is also spiritual, it is also physical. He, he is, his whole life is in the Lord now and in the future. Recently we've been putting up some cameras in the children's wing. They've been working on these things to get, why? For safety. Churches are consumed today with security and safety. And should they be? Yes. Uh, Jim Metcalf. His life is kind of them systems, right? Uh, I've learned something about some of you. You'll put a sign in your yard about a security system that you don't even have. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper just to borrow or have Jim give you a sign and you just put it up in the yard. And you're like, well, I'm good. Why do you do that? Well, you're trying to bring that protection and that kind of security. Well... Not only that, but what about the destabilizing effects of natural disasters today? And earthquakes, and tornadoes, and hurricanes, and floodings, and fire, and uncontrolled human evil. And within the last four years, think of the riots, destruction, terrorist bombings, public school shootings. Question, is our security dependent on things or circumstances? I want to tell you today that our assurance must be holy in God. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy in God, who is our portion and our cup. When all forms of security fail and all leave us defenseless, our Lord is still our portion. He's still our cup. He is our delightful portion with its boundary lines falling in pleasant places. All right, one last thought. You ready? It's one thing to say... That God's going to take care of us, protect us, be our all-satisfying treasure, supremacy of God in all of life while we live. But what about when we die? What about when we die? 
The most remarkable thing that David says is when we, know, when we know God, we know him in the power of his resurrection. Isn't that awesome? The first part of the psalm has strong statements about God's commitment to David in this lifetime and the difference the Lord has made, but nothing said is, uh, thus far is as remarkable as what follows. Listen, for you will not abandon. There's a precursor to it. My flesh also dwells secure. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David turns to the future. He expresses his confidence in what God will do with him in his death and even beyond the grave. Do y'all have that hope today? David declares his confidence that his soul will not be abandoned to the grave. He has an anticipation of, listen, an eternal existence in the presence of the Lord. Yippee! Just think of that for a moment. An eternal condition or eternal anticipation, eternal existence in the very presence of the Lord. Is this foreign to Scripture? Most people believe that Job is one of the earliest characters that ever lived and ever wrote Scripture that has been given to us, thank the Lord. But listen to what Job says. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Listen to this. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed... Listen, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Now, unless it don't take a lot of scientific thought to figure this out. When your body is placed in the ground, it's going to decompose. We do everything we can to keep it together as long as we can in the grave, but it's going to decompose. But yet Job says, in my flesh I shall see God. Not, not just... Not just to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But in your body, if you're a believer, you will see the Lord. In your body. So David expresses his belief and desire. Notice in chapter 17, verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront me, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. (laughs) In other words, you're not going to take it with you. And the lost people will get all they can get, but when they die, they leave it to their kids. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Doesn't that sound like 1 John 3? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Yet it does not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. There's an anticipation. David is confident that the Lord will not leave his soul in the grave. Right? The place of the dead. Listen to what David adds. Nor will the Lord allow his Holy One to see, undergo corruption, that is, decay. The Holy Spirit moves upon the heart of David to consider God's future plan, again, called a meta-narrative, and his purpose for his great son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the anointed one. He's the prototypical son of man in Psalm 8. He's the righteous sufferer in Psalm 22. And David looks down, led by the inspiration of the Spirit, 
through the corridors of future history and he sees Christ delivered from the corruption of the grave through a glorious resurrection. Although everybody else's bodies ever placed in the grave saw corruption, there's one whose body did not. Right? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So, y'all got time for this? All right. Godfathers will wait. Right? Was David consciously prophesying the Lord's resurrection? Was David conscious about what he was actually saying? We know that Abraham, we didn't, we didn't get all the information, but when Abraham offered up Isaac, we didn't realize that in, in Abraham's mind he was thinking, if he dies, God will raise him up. Why? Because God has to have an heir. He told me it would come through me, and Isaac is the only one. So he's got confidence that God will raise him up. You don't read that in Genesis, but you do read that in Hebrews. In chapter 11, it says that Abraham was confident that God would raise the dead. Isn't that awesome? So, was David conscious? I don't think David understood everything, but he was led by the Holy Spirit to speak of Christ. And the writers of the Bible, when they preach the first sermons in the book of Acts, they catch on to that. Y'all just listen. This Jesus, this is Peter preaching, delivered up according to the definitive plan of God and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for death to keep him there. For David says concerning him, are y'all with me? Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Who did Peter think Psalm 16 was talking about? You have made known to me the paths of life. You, have, you make me full of gladness with your presence. Here's Peter. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with you today. What that means is if you were to dig up and exhume his body, you're going to find bones in that tomb. Being therefore a prophet... He's speaking of David. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter says, the Holy One that did not see corruption is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if, if Peter's not enough... Listen to what Paul says in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, beginning in verse 35. The Bible says, Therefore he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. So today, I want you to know that we know him in the power of the resurrection. Furthermore, David could not have been saved apart from a future resurrection of Christ. Y'all do understand that Old Testament saints were saved as it were. The will had already been written, but the, but the trajectory of that will and how it was dispersed had not been finalized yet until Jesus Christ came forth from the grave. Now listen, folks. How important is the resurrection? Well, I'll tell you this. You can't be a believer without it. The Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus did not come forth from the grave, then our preaching is in vain. 
There's no reason to preach in a church if there's no resurrection. He also adds this. Your faith is futile if there's no resurrection. David had no faith if it wasn't for the resurrection of Christ. And you're talking 600 years. I get it. You're talking about seven to 800 years before Christ comes forth from the grave. But David was still saved by that very resurrection. And then the Bible says, if there is no resurrection, you're still in your sins. And we always think, well, he paid for my sins on the cross. Why does he need a resurrection? Because it was authentication that the price that he paid was significant. It was infinitely significant to pay the price for your sin. Had he not come back from the grave, he'd just be a dead Savior. And a dead Savior can't save anyone. So the resurrection is of absolute importance. If there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. You hear that from the Scripture. So, let me conclude. There's a lot of things I'd like to say, but my time is out. 1 Corinthians 15. Let me just remind you. It is the most extensive teaching in the Bible on the resurrection. Okay? I read this at funerals. This is not a funeral. But boy, howdy, is it good. Remember, you're not saved. You can't be saved without the resurrection. For, uh, Ephesians 1 says the very same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the very same power that saved your soul. You, you have resurrection. When God said in the scripture, you're dead in trespasses and sin. Think about it. The only way someone is dead that can be made alive is through resurrection. And, and although that's not talking about bodily at that time, that's what happened inside of you. Something that was dead came to life. And you came to life because of the power of the resurrection of Christ. He can say to those things that are dead, you're alive. And he does it by the spoken word. So that's the here and now. You're alive in Christ because of the resurrection. But what about when that body is in the grave? The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So theologically, when you depart, your soul will depart from that body. I don't know how much time you got left. I don't know how much time I've got. But the fact of the matter is, just multiply, say, what's the lifetime? The Bible says three score and ten, that's 70. By measure of strength, 80. The Bible got it pretty right, pretty close to right, didn't it? Just, have you ever multiplied 70 times 356 days to figure out how many days you have? So if you're 85, you're living on gravy, big time, right? <laughs> well, let's say the Bible says three score and ten in Psalm 90. Let's say you're going to make it to 70. What if you're 68? Take those two years and multiply it by three, 356 days of the year. That ain't many days. You got 1,000 days left. You start thinking of life like that, man, boy, how did that change things, right? God may, by measure of strength, give you 80. He may give you 100, but those days are coming. But your body's going to die, okay? But God has a plan. I'll tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't go to heaven like you are. If the rapture took place today, you'd still be changed. You can't go to heaven like you are. Nor does the perishable, this, inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What does that mean? You may be alive at the coming of Christ. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised 
imperishable. <laughs> this is what David's talking about, right? Imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on in the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now look, put this together. Put this together. I said it early on. Jesus satisfies and victory are connected. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. You don't have that victory if you're not in Christ. Only Jesus satisfies. If you don't have Christ, then you don't have victory. But if you do have Christ, the Lord God of eternity has taken death and he's plucked the stinger straight out of it. Why? Because death will not hold your body either. Just as he came forth from the grave, 1 Corinthians 15, he's the first fruits and your body's going to follow one day. And you're going to come out fresh from the trauma of the grave. And you're going to, I don't know how it's going to take place, but your soul will be reunited with your body. And you forever will be with the Lord in body and soul. You're not going to be floating around in heaven as a phantom. You're forever with the Lord in body, just like the Son of God. I'm going to tell you, that's confidence. I told you this was a psalm of confidence that God would be our portion all the way through life. That he would be your cup all the way to the end, and then in your body, you will be present with the king forever. I don't know about you, but nothing satisfies me like Christ. If you don't know him today, I'm telling you, there is no other way. There's only one name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Only one, and that's Jesus. There is no salvation in any other. Jesus said, I'm the way, not one of the ways. I am the way. The truth, the life, no man will come to the Father except through me. If you don't know Christ today, I'm telling you, come to him. You'll find no greater satisfaction than knowing the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the confidence that David had. We're amazed at the fact that hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the face of the earth, David had a sense a God-given sense, the Holy Spirit leading that his son that would come through him, the greater king, the Lord Jesus, that he would conquer death, that the grave could not hold him. He was placed in a borrowed tomb, and three days later, death could not hold him. Lord, we thank you for the truth of Scripture. Father, my prayer is today for lost people that you would resurrect their hearts. Take out a heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. That they can know you, trust you. Lord, for Christians, Lord, may we seek no other satisfaction in this world other than you. May we find our joy in you. Truth be told, this church ought to be a joyful church. We should not drag in here on Sunday to worship you as if you're dead. Because you're alive. You're our portion. You are our inheritance. As the song says, we ought to sing songs of loudest praise. Lord, help us know that 
you bring to us from the fount of every blessing. God, help us know that, that there's only, there's only satisfaction in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's join in singing, knowing you. Mike, after the, ver- after the chorus, let's go to that third verse, to know Christ in his risen life. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no Praise the Lord. I want to thank the Lord for incredible numbers during VBS. We pray that the gospel uh, will affect change in people's lives. And uh, that's a glorious prospect to think about the seeds that were sown and what the Lord may do through that. Please, I think Don told me we had about 15. We've got 23 prospect cards. And we've done a pretty good bit of work to find out that most of those are not in church. Okay? At all. So, help us go and see them. Make a phone call. Drop by their homes. There's 23 cards out in the commons. Okay? Go by there and pick one of those up. Let that be your uh, gospel encounter for this week. Right? Take that card with you. There's, again, 23 of them. If you want to grab two, you can. But uh, that's wonderful outreach. And there's no excuse for our church not being on our doorstep when somebody comes as a prospect. We got the greatest news that could ever be told, right? So let's let's hit those prospects and grab a card as you go by there. We're also uh, we are also headed to Little Rock tomorrow morning. That means me too. Uh, pray for the pastor. Been a while since I've slept low to the ground. Uh, we're going to be sleeping in a gym, and we're going to be doing a lot of construction projects in Little Rock, Arkansas, through World Changers, and so um, similar to Love Thy Neighbor. Right? But we'll be down in Little Rock this week. So pray for that. Jeffrey's going to come up here and close out our service thinking of our youth mission trip. Uh, God bless each one of you. Thank you. If you're going to go on the uh, student summer mission trip, just raise your hand. We have 24 students and 6 adults. Uh, We are going to be going down to Little Rock. And so our prayer is this with Paul. We pray for opportunity to share the gospel. We pray for boldness. We pray for clarity, that we, ought to, that we would speak what we ought to speak. And so we're doing acts of kindness that build bridges to take the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are in need. So let's pray that God would give us those things, and we would cover your prayers throughout the week, along with prayers for safety, since it's going to be hot. So 
We will share that with you here back in Spring or in Ozark. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, Lord. May we treasure you above everything else. May we be able to say that we have nothing good besides you. May you be our supreme joy. May we find pleasure and joy in your presence. Lord, I pray right now that you would be with those who are going to Little Rock. I pray for the young stu- the students and the adults as we go. I pray for, uh, first of all, um, just boldness and courage. Lord, when we treasure something, that's when we talk about it. And I pray that we would treasure you more than anything else, and each one of these students would treasure you to the point where they're willing to tell other people about how great you are and about your love and about your sacrifice and about Jesus and, the, and him being the good shepherd who laid down his life for people. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with clarity, understanding what the gospel is. I pray that you would give us opportunity as we come in contact with people, just like Jesus said he had to go to, uh, to Samaria in order to talk with the woman at the well. Lord, as he made and had divine appointments, I pray for divine appointments down in Arkansas. Lord, I pray for all of us as the, and pray for these 15 uh, cards, Lord, that have names on them, and each name is a soul. And each, and each name is a, is a, is a, represents a family. And I pray that our church would have a heart to go and reach those people. And I pray that you would be with each one of those people who pick up one of those cards and goes and visits or make a phone call. I pray that we would take your word, sow it out generously, and we ask that you would bring fruit. We water, we plant, but you give the increase. And we pray and ask these things in your name and keep the enemy at bay as your kingdom goes forward. In Christ's name, amen.